On his way home from work, Nathan Hesselink noticed a crowd starting to form outside the University of British Columbia's football stadium. And so, of course, I asked one of the students, you know, what are you waiting in line for? And they said, oh, you know, didn't you know Radiohead is playing tonight? Nathan is a professor at the University School of Music. He's an ethnomusicologist. And while he'd heard about Radiohead the band, he hadn't heard any of their music. As he went about his evening routine, he just couldn't stop thinking about this concert. So I had dinner and then I just thought, you know, I've got to go out and hear Radiohead play live, even if I can't see them like directly because the tickets had been sold out for some time. Nathan's plan, as much as he had one, was to just hang outside the stadium and see what he could hear. Well, anyways, of course, it started to rain like at, you know, 50% of the time or more here in, in Vancouver. And I didn't want to go by myself, so I, I dragged my 10-year-old son and my wife. I mean, why suffer alone, right? Anyway, the three of them soon realized that they weren't the only ones with this idea. There are probably about, I'd say about another hundred people out there. You know, tourists, other students, people who are curious or, or didn't want to spend the money or didn't have the money for the tickets. And so there's this huge camped out community on the outside, everyone holding umbrellas, you know, getting drenched. The concert starts and to Nathan's surprise, the sound from outside the arena was pretty good. So the three of them ended up staying for the entire show. By the end, of course, you know, we're soaking wet and, you know, it's not that I had sort of a transcendent experience or anything, but it was just so fascinating hearing the band and it was much more diverse. And there's just a lot going on with the music that maybe I wasn't expecting or I hadn't prepared myself for it. Nathan was hooked. Well, in a way, perhaps unusually for a Radiohead fan, it wasn't the preternatural vocals or the dystopian lyricism or even the experimental instrumentation that got him in. What hooked Nathan was the rhythm. I think it just came at a time where I was still very much engaged in doing work on South Korean folk percussion, which is what I did my degrees in and did my field work and, and really what I was hired at UBC to teach. So I always had kind of an ear for rhythm but, you know, with this particular band, I guess from that night when I said things were interesting or challenged me in certain ways, I think a large part of that had to do, you know, rhythmically what was happening. And that led to me then, you know, pretty much the next week going out and finding all of their music on CD and then starting to work my way through their music. Now, I don't know what happens when you discover new music, but for me, it's a pretty casual affair. There's usually a standout track that leads to a couple more tracks that maybe leads to an album. And once I'm hooked, then I'll go and seek out those deeper cuts. But for Nathan, working through the Radiohead back catalogue was a lot more meticulous and orderly. He started with album one, Pablo Honey, track one, You, and listened through that album in order. And he then listened again, over and over, only moving on to album two, The Benz, once he was convinced that he gained a full appreciation for the debut. So it, it was a little weird that way, but I, I felt like I needed to sort of wrap my head around it. And so what I also did, which is kind of on the more nerdy side, was as I went through the songs, I started doing kind of rough sketches of, of some of the more rhythmically interesting songs. And so that's why it took me a while. It was incredibly time consuming, of course. And, uh, and it sort of drove my family crazy because they would hear the same song or the same album, you know, over and over like they couldn't escape it. And for a while, Nathan's highly structured journey of Radiohead discovery continued just like this. Song after song, album after album, with Nathan charting interesting rhythmic structures as he went. But then, 
he arrived at album number five, Amnesiac, track two, Pyramid Song. You know, I'd felt pretty good up until that point of catching most of what I thought I heard. And then when I got to that song, it completely threw me for a loop, you know. And then I knew that something really different was happening with that song. And that, and then that led to its own kind of solo project, or, or how I describe it to my friends, a kind of black hole, you know, that I jumped into for a couple of years. I jumped in the river, what did I see? I just remember the initial impression was that well, first, it's, it's really, um, it just has this opening that's really, you know, mysterious or awe-inspiring or, you know, it kind of grips you right away, just the texture. It's not like a lot of other songs that way. But then, you know, when the piano comes in, like, right away, I realized that, you know, I thought I could just sort of, you know, subconsciously tap along with the song, which is something I kind of like to do anyways. And right away with that song, I just, you know, it just has that one little stutter in the one chord that just makes it impossible to tap your hand or your foot perfectly in time I mean until you've gotten used to it but it's not a regular pulse and that's just so unusual in popular music right in, in any genre of popular music and so I was just, the more I listened to it I was like what what's going on and, and in fact I listened to the opening a few times before realizing that the drums came in you know the, the second half of the song so you know I, I initially thought wow is the whole song like this like is everyone just gonna be kind of floating around with the rhythm and and then the drums came in. And it just completely blew me away because I think like a lot of people, the first or second time you hear the song, you feel a new alignment, like where the piano chords might be or you feel a beat. And it, it's really, it's like having your feet knocked out from under you, you know, sonically anyway. And it just totally blew my mind. And so, you know, then I listened to the song probably another seven, eight times. And then, I did something which wasn't really common for me, at least back then in 2008, was I went online. Nathan, who, let's remember, is a professor of music, he was so perplexed by Pyramid Song's mysterious rhythms that he turned to the internet to try to get some clarity around what was going on. And kind of like turning up to the stadium and finding hundreds of other people crowded outside, once he got online, he found that, again a lot of people had had exactly the same idea. These fans were all logging in pretty involved discussions just about the rhythm. I mean, there were a lot of other people talking about the melody and the lyrics and why is it called Pyramid Song, but it was that rhythm discussion that I just couldn't believe that that many people were, were getting into it. Nathan found entire nooks of the internet overrun by warring tribes of Radiohead fans each staunch in the belief that their interpretation of the Pyramid Song rhythm was the correct one. It's a super interesting debate, and it gets into the intricacies of counting time signatures, and we'll get Nathan's best guess as to how it all plays out for Pyramid Song a bit later in the show. For now, what I find truly compelling about all of this is that there's even a debate at all. I mean, think about it, there's whole communities of people meeting online, arguing online about the intricacies of the rhythm, the time signature of a pop song. I find that incredible. Like, for starters, it's the kind of beautifully niche interest that forms the connective tissue of internet culture. But more than that, 
Why this? What is it about the rhythm of a pop song that compels people to jump online and furiously debate each other? Well, it turns out that Pyramid Song is just one example of a song with a very particular type of rhythm. A rhythm that we humans find captivating. And it's a very human, a deeply ancient thing to be captivated by rhythm. So earlier, when Nathan was talking about trying to tap along to Pyramid Song, you know, I thought I could just sort of, you know, subconsciously tap along with the song, which is something I kind of like to do anyways. This thing we do, this tapping along to the beat, it's something we humans find deeply satisfying in this completely primal way. And it's something scientists call entrainment. So yeah, when we talk about the entrainment to music, it usually refers to this spontaneous ability we have when we listen to music to synchronize our body, to move our body to the beat of the music. Dr. Sylvie Nozaraden is a doctor twice over. She studied medicine before doubling down on a neuroscience PhD. Oh yeah, she's also a classically trained pianist. So really, she's the perfect person to untangle this very human compulsion to tap along to a beat. And it is a uniquely human thing to do. Human beings are the only one being able to synchronize spontaneously with music with a great flexibility and, and variability. So it means that that's okay for an animal maybe to, to synchronize with a metronome. But when it gets more complicated than that, like most of the music we listen uh, in the radio, then uh, human beings appear to be the only ones being able to synchronize accurately. And it's an ability that we pick up at an early age. Well, most of us do anyway. Many researchers have shown that this uh, ability emerges quite early in childhood. Of course, there is a large inter-individual variability, so it means that uh, we all probably know uh, uh, like a friend or someone, <laughs> a relative who doesn't know how to dance or move on music. But we don't have to be a music expert, a professional musician to be able to, to be entrained by the beat of the music. That's something quite spontaneous and universal, actually. Sylvie studies this rhythmic compulsion we have by peering inside our brain as it's locking onto a beat. So, yeah, the main tool that we use is EEG which consists in placing a cap with electrodes on the heads of the participants. And so we record the, this electrical activity of the brain while they listen to typically uh, music rhythm or music. These EEG recordings happen in real time, which means you can directly link what's happening in the brain to whatever's going on in the music at that moment. And setting aside the whole patchwork of electrodes you have glued to your scalp, these experiments sound closer to a night at home in front of the record player than they do a scientific experiment. So most of the, the experiments, it's a passive listening. We just ask the participants to relax, to listen to the music, feel the beat without moving, so their heads rest on the support, they are just relaxed. This relaxed stage of the experiment is really important because it allows the researchers to isolate what's happening in the brain. Any brain activity they measure will be the brain alone reacting to the audio, not your brain listening to the audio as well as making your toe tap along. And then after the EEG recording, we ask them to tap the beats they felt from the music, and then we can compare these two responses to so the neural activity while they were just passively listening without moving, and then when they are actually asked to dance or to tap on, on the beat of the music. And what they find when they compare the relaxed recording to the tapping along is, well, 
this is going to blow your mind a little bit. What we have seen from these recordings is that the neural populations... That is, your brain cells... ...are able to synchronise to the rhythmic input quite accurately. Which means it's not just your toe that taps along to the beat. Your brain cells pulse with the beat as well. And we can capture this synchronisation of the neurons. That's what we call the neural entrainment. And by doing so, we were able to identify some, some peaks of neural activity precisely synchronized at the frequency of the beats. And we were really uh, surprised to see that because, of course, if we present the participants with a metronome, a simple metronome, and we record EEG, it's quite logic that we will find a peak of neural activity at the frequency of the metronome. But when we present more complex music, like music we could hear in our everyday life, which is not at all like a metronome, but much more complex in terms of rhythmic structure, we can still find this peak of neural activity precisely at the beat frequency. It's like your brain knows where the beat should be, even when it's not there. So if you're listening to music and your brain's pulsing along to the beat, but then the beat drops out, your brain keeps pulsing as if the beat was still there. It's like it has its own built-in metronome. The thing is, no one's really sure where that metronome came from. Well, it's quite unclear at the moment. It's uh, highly debated, but it's probably related to the, the brain anatomy. So some regions of our brain would allow us to synchronize accurately and in a flexible way with the auditory inputs, with music, for instance. And uh, these brain regions, in fact, it's not only one region, it's a network of brain regions. These regions could also be related to our ability uh, for speech as a humans. So these things are likely to be related. These are the most prominent areas at the moment. So it's the idea that as our brains grew larger, these areas that maybe we were using language and that had benefits, but then the areas of the brain that developed to kind of accommodate that yeah. also had this byproduct that we sort of could find the beat and find rhythm. Yeah, exactly. So. Uh, in that sense, being able to entrain to music, to the beat of music, could be a byproduct of our ability for speech. But again, it's uh, debated at the moment. So some researchers have argued that could be the opposite. So that being able to entrain to a musical rhythm has come before our ability for speech in the human evolution. So that could also be plausible. Oh, that's really interesting, because I guess a lot of the like early human experience with rhythm might have come from drumming circles yes. or these tribal practices. So maybe those rituals came first and the brain areas developed and then speech developed out of that. Is that? Yeah, exactly. And there is also a theory, one of these theories has argued that, yeah, indeed, speech has evolved as a byproduct of music. So as a first humans, we first sang and then communicated with each other with uh, some forms of primitive drumming and then it evolved in more complex sound communication, which turns out to be our speech now. So, our brains have evolved to instinctively synchronise to a beat. But that doesn't tell us anything about the type of music we actually enjoy listening to. When it comes to capturing our attention, making us move our bodies or take to online forums to furiously debate the time signature of a Radiohead song, a simple metronomic beat just doesn't cut it. As humans, we have a natural tendency to entrain to regular beats. So if it's just a da, 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 there's a fair chance we may want to start tapping our foot along with it. But in the end, 
could be argued it's actually a little bit boring having just a steady beat going through everything. When the rhythm is too complex, on the other hand, it's also kind of boring because we can't really catch a beat and we don't want to move on these rhythms neither. So there is like a compromise between simplicity and complexity to be able for a rhythm to attract movement and uh, to make people dance. This is the concept of rhythmic or metric ambiguity. Our brains seem primed to enjoy rhythms that are a bit more interesting than a four-to-the-floor metronomic beat, but not so complicated that you can't find the beat at all. Dr Andy Milne is a colleague of Dr Sylvie Nozaraden, and he believes that this rhythmically ambiguous zone can be a creatively rich space for musicians. What the artist is attempting to do is to find a sort of a Goldilocks zone in the middle where you're presenting the listener something which is complicated, but it's not so complicated they can't understand it. It just takes a bit of effort. So the process of listening to music then becomes almost like a sort of a game. And when you get it, when you get what's happening, there is this natural reward mechanism that happens in the brain to reward you for understanding or for having correctly predicted something. And again, you see this play out in Sylvie's brain data. What we tend to find in our EEG data, so in the neural activity of the brain, is the same. So when a rhythm is very simple, okay, we have a very clear activity, but it's not that big as what we would find in a more complex rhythm. But again, when the rhythm is too complex, the activity is again smaller. So there is also a kind of compromise. So it was like if the brain was locking more easily when it's slightly complex, but not too much. That is, your brain's built-in metronome ticks loudest in these rhythmically ambiguous zones. Andy Mill makes beats that fall squarely within the Goldilocks zone of rhythmic ambiguity, and he does this by applying some quite complex maths to music theory. So, for example, he'll take the type of polyrhythms you hear in the drumming patterns of sub-Saharan Africa, he'll quantify those patterns, and then he'll recreate them electronically. Okay, this rhythm is called the Mo and Sola rhythm. I may well have pronounced that wrong, and it was actually documented by a famous African musicologist called Aram, and it's a pygmy dance rhythm. And it's made up, really, of three rhythms happening at the same time. And these three rhythms are just played on different parts of the same drum. So you've got one person playing the wide end of the drum, you've got another person playing the small end of the drum, and the third person is playing the side of the drum with a stick. So I'm going to play each of the rhythms that they're playing separately, and then I'll join them up. And it's when you join them all up, you get this amazing sort of polyrhythmic effect. So this is one of the rhythms. Okay, so it's just a steady beat. And this is another one of the rhythms. Okay, so that's a little bit more complicated, but it's still fairly simple. And this is the final one of the rhythms. Okay, so now the key thing is that that last rhythm essentially repeats three times during the entire period, where the other two rhythms actually repeat four times. So you've got this three against four structure, but these rhythms are all interweaving with each other. So I'm going to build up the rhythm from the first one, then I'm going to add the second and then the third.
Wow, that's you, you definitely feel the groove. It's like you go from sort of nodding your head to sort of moving your entire body. Yeah, and the wonderful thing about these polyrhythms is that they are, in a sense, or to a Western ear, arguably, they're metrically ambiguous because throughout the cycle of the rhythm, you can count it as being grouped into threes or you can count it as being grouped into four. Or alternatively, you can just feel the whole, the totality of it. And it's the mathematics of the mismatch between the number of beats in each pattern that really drives this sense of ambiguity. It becomes interesting when you've got a regular beat and you've got another regular beat and they're running at different speeds such that the numbers of beats in both of the rhythms is co-prime, which means that their greatest common divisor is one. So, for example, if you've got, say, four beats happening, and then you've got another rhythm which has got two beats happening at the same time, then they just coincide. In other words, the two is just a subset of four. But if you've got four beats running and you've got three beats at the same time, then although one of them can coincide, the other two beats of the three cannot coincide with the others. So you get this sort of interlocking pattern. And this will always occur when you've got a co-prime number of beats. So for example, it would happen if you had a rhythm which had five beats to the cycle and another rhythm which had four beats to the cycle, because four and five, their greatest common divisor is one. So they can only ever meet in the rhythm. They can only ever happen at the same time at one particular temporal location. Can you show me? Let's imagine we've got a period divided into four. So I'm just going to play one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And now I'm going to play exactly the same length of time, but now I'm going to divide it into three. So it's going to go a bit slower. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Now, if I play both of those at the same time, we get a fairly standard polyrhythm, which is four against three. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. So you can count that in two ways. You could count the four, or you could count the three, or you can just sort of hear the totality of it. Now, what we find is, is that when the two numbers of beats in the two rhythms are co-prime, it naturally follows from that that they can only ever coincide at one time in the period. So I'm going to speak that time with a one. 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 So all other times in the period, the two rhythms are not coinciding. If this three against four pattern is a fairly standard polyrhythm, I want to know what something a bit less standard sounds like. One. So let's take a rhythm here, which has got 12 pulses happen regularly, which sound like this. Okay, so they're quite fast. And then we're going to now play a rhythm which divides that entire set of 12 as evenly as possible into seven beats. Now, seven doesn't go into 12. So this means that you've got this natural syncopation happening. And this is what this sounds like.
and of interest, the second rhythm I played. is actually a very common Western African rhythm. It's used as a timeline, which is actually used to guide the other musicians. And another interesting thing about it is that it's actually the rhythmic analogue to the standard diatonic scale in Western music. So if you think of the standard C major scale, it goes C, D, E, F, G, A, B, and then back up to C. And the steps of those, so from C to D is two steps, from D to E is two steps, from E to F is just one step, it's one semitone. So you get this pattern as you go up the major scale of two, two, one, two, 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 one. And if you play that rhythmically, this is exactly what you hear. Huh. And so what is it about that? Like, what do you think... Yeah. <laughs> Can you unpack that a little bit? I mean, it could just be a crazy coincidence that the most common scale throughout the world happens to be the same as this very commonly used rhythm, but it does have some nice mathematical properties. So in particular, one of them is that if you calculate the entropy of the step sizes, it has the lowest entropy of any possible rhythm that has two step sizes. So, okay, I'll try to unpack that a little bit more. Entropy is a measure of the disorder of a system or its unpredictability. So a very predictable rhythm or scale would just have steps that are all the same size. But this rhythm has got steps of two sizes and there are different ways of arranging those two step sizes. So instead of going two, two, one, two, 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 one, we could go two, 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 one, one. So we could cluster those ones together. But what we would find is that the entropy of the sequences of step sizes actually increases with the two, 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 one, one rhythm compared to the, the major scale type rhythm. In other words, it could be argued that these so-called well-formed or sometimes known as maximally even rhythms actually provide one of these sort of Goldilocks zones of being not too complicated and unpredictable, but at the same time being more interesting than just a steady beat. So that's one possible explanation for why they seem to be in a sense sort of musically appealing. Now, all this maths, the science that underlies these rhythms, it's just a way of trying to understand them better. For the most part, it's quite divorced from the actual creation of music. Here's Nathan Hesselink again. What complicates all of this is that, of course, these are abstract concepts, and you know, a lot of people write music without thinking about meter or without thinking about beat hierarchies. And then, of course, it gets more complicated when, when you're dealing with with a lot of popular music artists, jazz and pop music and rock, you know, they don't read or write music and they don't really think in terms of meter or where beats or pulses are. So uh, this is all flexible and that's the beauty of it, of course, and that's why musicians don't like when people tell them, oh, this rhythm is better at making people dance than the other one because they want to feel free to compose with any kind of rhythm and they will make it interesting for the people depending on the context and many other things. So all these things are always very flexible and depending on the context. When musicians compose in these rhythmically ambiguous zones, they just do it to make their music more interesting. 
And they do that based on a feeling, a gut feeling that this is what's going to connect with the listener. And, you know, maybe it's that gut feeling. Maybe that's what links directly and deeply back to the mathematical foundations that were laid down in ancient drumming circles. Which brings us back to Radiohead's Pyramid Song. You see, it's one of these songs that sits in the Goldilocks zone of rhythmic ambiguity. Which might explain why Nathan Hesslink, a music professor, was so confounded by the time signature that he went searching for answers online. When he found his warring tribes of Radiohead fans, he decided to apply an academic instinct to figure out exactly what was going on. I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to try to actually figure out what all these people actually mean. Like, I'm going to try to standardize it all into kind of Western music theory terms. And broadly speaking, he found that when you take out all the fringy outlier views, two main tribes formed in the pyramid song debate. Is the song a song in simple meter? So are they playing in eighth notes and sixteenth notes, like divisions in twos or fours? Or is the song in compound meter? They're not all using that language, of course, but so is the song in threes? You know, so basically the one camp is saying the song to them sounds more like, like I say, a typical rock song. And then the other camp really felt that this song was more jazz inflected. And in the battle between rock and jazz, each side went to some pretty extreme lengths to prove their case. In the 4-4 tribe, you know, you have a guy created a music video with a, like a really a, kind of obnoxious click track, you know, that, that he, ov he overlays on top of the song saying, <laughs> see, I proved this because this is how it lays up. Well, whether or not the guy is right, the click track is so loud. I mean, I could put almost any song under the click track he generated. And, and then you had other people like running the song through really complicated software programs and, you know, doing micro timing stuff, you know, the stuff that like academics do with jazz music and timing the little, you know, the onset of every cymbal hit and every snare drum hit and then coming up with complex, you know, ratios and running them through to see, you know, what the inner ratios were within the drum part and the measures. And it was kind of a raging thing and people would talk back and forth specifically about that issue. So which tribe does Nathan belong to? What's his best guess for the time signature of Pyramid Song? For me, in terms of the way that I like to listen to it, maybe in five or six different ways, but for me, I like to hear the song as a recurring or repeating three bars of 9, 8, 6, 8, and 9, 8. I hear the jazz inflection in the song. And of course, if you go online and read Radiohead interviews about the song, they don't tell you much about the meter, but the drummer and others will say that, and Tom York will say he and Phil Selway were listening to a lot of Charles Mingus and and other jazz musicians, and so they kind of almost come out and say that the song has a jazz feel to it because that's what they were listening to when they were thinking about the song and when they recorded it. And I only know this because I dug as deep as I thought as I could. The song was initially just recorded with the drummer and Tom York on piano, so they record the whole song from start to finish, and then all the other layers are are added at a later point, you know, in external studios. And so really the feeling is dictated by the drummer and Tom York on piano and singing. So I would say 986898, but it's not important for me. You know, I think like most of the listeners I document, it's not important that anyone agrees with me. Some of All Parts is produced by me, Joel Werner. Jonathan Webb is science editor. Sound design by me and Mark Don. 
thanks to Professor Nathan Hesselink, Dr. Sylvie Nozeraden, and Dr. Andy Milne because they let me in on the secrets of the rhythm. Thanks also to my friends Dr. Tim Byron and Dr. John Brock for some very interesting conversations in this space when this story was just a vague idea. And hey, we're back. We're back. It's so good to be back, finally. I know, right? This season we have more stories from me, but also a selection of excellent features from some friends of the show. So stick around, tell your mates all about it, all of that stuff that we say in this part of the podcast. If you want to get in touch, it's soap at abc.net.au. That's how you do it. Email me, talk to me, tell me things. But for now, that's it. 